Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. I'm your host, Will Francis, and today I'll be talking to Jim Lasinski, a clinical associate professor of marketing at Kellogg, where he teaches marketing strategy and omnichannel marketing distribution strategy. And we're going to be talking about the role of AI in the ever-changing digital landscape and in marketing strategy and execution. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Will. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you, Jim. I'm really glad to have you on. You've been very public in talking about this as a topic, and you also have a book out on the subject. Just tell us about that briefly to kind of frame the uh, conversation about the book. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. The book is called The AI Marketing Canvas, a five-step roadmap to implementing AI and machine learning into your marketing toolkit. I wrote it with a uh, co-author, a colleague, a friend, a professor uh, named Dr. Rajkumar Venkatesan. He's from the Darden School of Business at University of Virginia. And the two of us endeavored to see if we couldn't put together a, a playbook for how to go from, well, what we've taken to call Will, from zero to hero using AI in your marketing function. Right. I mean, so what are the nuts and bolts of that? I mean, how... I mean, you can't read the whole book to me, but what are the kind of main ways in which that happens, do you think? Yeah, the book is uh, intended to be very actionable, not theoretical or, or high level, although there is certainly some you know, technical explanation baseline of what is AI uh, as a prerequisite that we wrote about. But look, I mean, if I were to ask you or you were to ask me, how do you get started? What's a roadmap to become proficient for my brand in social media or in search marketing? Right. There's a roadmap. There's a playbook. There's a set of steps that are sort of well known among industry experts. But that really does not yet exist uh, when it comes to um, becoming proficient with machine learning and AI and marketing. So what we did was we went and talked to dozens of firms, some who were very successful already, you know, sort of early on implementing AI and some who, you know, were less successful. And we coded what they did and what their steps were and tried to kind of arrive at, therefore, avoid these things and do more of those things. Uh, and then assembled that into a five stages, sort of almost a maturity, do this first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Uh, and that's kind of the playbook that uh, we've introduced to the industry. And we're pleased to say it's gotten a, a fairly good reception. Brilliant. What are those five stages out of interest? Look, so the first stage is obviously, um, you know, you need to gather what computer scientists um, would call training data, right? These these prediction machines, to paraphrase the title of, of an excellent book on this topic, right? They, they require input to then forecast or predict an output. And we can talk about technically how they do that. There's various different ways. But, um, you know, when you start to type uh, good morning and, you know, your Gmail then suggests the word Jim when you're typing to me, uh, that's a prediction, right? So, but in order to do that, it needed the first two words of input. So, you know, for marketers, what we're talking about now typically is customer data. It could be supplier data. It could be um, sales data, but it needs training data that typically is zero party and first party. So, that's the first step is you have to do that. And we can talk about why to do that and not rely on third-party cookies from your ad agency and those kinds of things. But uh, armed with that, then the next step, and this is where we saw, Will, a lot of companies sort of uh, stub their toe, was you don't go build your own algorithms, hire your own computer scientists, create your own models. Actually, all of the trusted partners that your marketing team is already working with for 
email, for social, for search marketing, et cetera, all have very proficient, um, you know, tools for this. So whether it's Meta or Adobe or uh, MailChimp or Salesforce or Google, they all have tools. So the second step is not to build your own, but to lean in to the tools that your partners have built and start to get some experience under your belt with, uh, let's call it old way versus new way. Um, things done by hand in a spreadsheet versus things that are predicted and optimized by machine learning. And then the third step uh, is that you want to start to build an in-house competency, start to in-source some of those things. I mean, we some of us are old enough to remember when we used to outsource the building of our websites, right? Like, oh, we don't know anything about website building. We'll have somebody else do that for us. Well, no one does that anymore, right? Because it's a core competency. It's a differentiator done in-house for the most part. So that's the third stage. Uh, the fourth stage then is where we sort of make a, a build versus buy decision. We flip the switch. We have enough evidence. We have enough competence to fully move towards this you know, AI first marketing. It might require a conversation with the CFO for some additional resources. We might need to uh, acquire a company or, or hire some folks. Um, but that's really stage four. And that's where most companies will, will top out. A few will get to stage five, which is where you're so good at this that it actually becomes an external additional revenue stream where you're able to sell what you've built uh, typically to non-competitors so that they can then you know, use what the tools that you've created. But only a few companies will get there. So that's sort of what we learned from our research. And um, that's the roadmap that we present to, to the industry for their consideration and application. Yes. Um so what level of understanding are you coming across in business around AI? Are people getting their heads around it successfully? Well, look, I mean, I would say um, in the last eight, nine months, you know, certainly since uh, end of January when Satya Nutella stood up and did his, you know, um, Bing demo, open AI demo, I think it's been an eye opener for, for marketers. Um, I would say going into the year, a couple of sources of data said that more than 50% of marketers consider themselves total novices or beginners at this. Um, but I would say, you know, generally folks are really spending a lot of effort and energy, rightly so this year, trying to figure out what to do. So, um, you know, I would say now we start to see, you know, more and more people not say that they're super experts, but, you know, may maybe one step beyond true novices. Yeah. Because your focus at Northwestern, is educating executives on the opportunities, but also the challenges around generative AI, right? Tell us about that. Well, look, I mean, let's start on the opportunity side because I am uh, a generally an optimistic guy and I am very optimistic and bullish here. You know, while it's been said many times, it bears repeating that, you know, I think we are very much in, as has been called, a steam to electricity transition moment. This is not another new app. This is not another new feature. This is not another new website or another new social media network. This is a tectonic transitional moment. And, um, you know, we have had a few moments like this in uh, business history. And I, and I think we're on the precipice early days of one now. And so, you know, like steam, uh, electricity did to steam, has the opportunity to reshuffle winners and losers, remake businesses, industries, categories, and brands. And so what are the opportunities? Well, very specifically here, I think 
AI and machine learning offer brands, offer marketers an opportunity to improve efficiency and to improve effectiveness of their marketing. And those efficiency and effectiveness gains can be either applied to their internal function, things that their staff, their team does that customers never see, and or to external things that are customer facing. So we have for ourselves uh, a business school professor's dream, a nice little neat two by two, efficiency and effectiveness on one axis, and of course, internal and external on the other axis. So you know we can talk about some use cases and some examples, but that's often how, like when I'm talking to boards or CMOs, that's how I, you know, I say, well, what does this thing do? Like, why should I use it? What's the potential? It's those four boxes. Yes. What what are the biggest challenges that people come to you with or, or even that they don't know about around it currently? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, there, there are um, uh, internal and external risks here. So let's start with some of them, um, maybe closer in and then go bigger picture risks. So look, the first risk is um, understanding knowledge, competency risk, right? Like, you know, do we have people on the team, on staff who understand this? Do we need different people? How do we retrain our people? How do we even get started? So, so it's some of those kinds of, I'll call them first order kind of challenges or risks. All of those things are, of course, highly overcomable with some effort, some focus, some training, some learning, those kinds of things. Then we get into, I'll call them kind of second level risks, and that's not intended to minimize these. In some senses, the risks actually escalate here. But the the next level risk is, um, okay, in order to do this, we talk about training data. Um, there are certainly a lot of things that a marketing department could use without any confidential company data. Oh, for example, if I'm thinking about launching a new product, oh, I don't know, in the cat food space, I, I could use these tools to kind of gather third-party existing research to help me be smarter, faster about what's going on in the cat food category. No confidential data involved. But then if I want to start to say, well, which of my customers, which of my stores, which are my retail outlets, how should I price it, uh, right? My suppliers, margin, like all of those kinds of, you know, typical go-to-market questions involve confidential and internal data. And so now a risk, a concern is, well, wait a minute, who am I sharing that with? I'm just typing that into apps or AI tools. And, you know, all of us saw earlier this year, the cautionary tale from the Samsung engineers typing Samsung code into ChatGPT, which ended up leaking. So um, those are overcomable. We can certainly talk about, you know, even in the past three months, um, how we can get past and get over those kinds of concerns and hurdles. But that's a very real concern. The next third level concern then becomes around accuracy of these tools, right? Like they're making predictions, but as computer scientists call it, Will, like, they're not always making accurate predictions. Sometimes those are called hallucinations, uh, factual errors, et cetera. And so, you know, again, we've seen cautionary tales of barristers and lawyers asking for case precedents uh, of these tools, and it invents a historical case that they go into court and show the judge, and the judge says that case never happened. So, you know, we have to be careful about that. And then we get into um, the next level of risk is around ownership and rights. So what kind of underlying data sets were these tools trained on? And if you are then going to take the output of that, do you actually have the right to do that? I mean, we saw 
comedian actor Sarah Silverman very famously right uh, brought a lawsuit saying, "Hey, wait a minute, you trained on my." kind of confidential IP, my copyright, and you can't do that. Um, So there's copyright ownership input issues and then output issues. In the U.S., the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has ruled that, you know, unless it is a human-created output, you can't trademark or copyright it. Well, marketers trademark and copyright their TV adverts and their print ads and all those kinds of things. So that's a concern. And then we get into, of course, bias concerns and cultural concerns, um, the impact on society that these kind of tools are having, even down to, I saw Microsoft uh, released that, you know, their water consumption, their energy usage has greatly jumped up from using these tools. So, you know, those, I don't mean to minimize those, but, you know, those get, you know, beyond the world of just marketers concerns into sort of, you know, global cultural AI overall concerns. So that's kind of the, I mean, not a small list, right? It's not a small list. And and I find, so I, I run workshops and courses about digital marketing and AI plays a increasingly big role in that stuff. And I've come across delegates and students on my courses who say, I won't use chat GPT and stuff because I just ethically, I just can't, I can't use it. And I'm not 100% sure what to say to them. I mean, I, I, I don't ever want to become an apologist for the big tech companies. That's not my job. But... At the same time, I'm, I sort of see. I don't want to see people limiting themselves unnecessarily. What, you must have come across that. What, what do you say to people who take that stance? Yeah, look, I mean, we appreciate values, morals, cultural, principled, disciplined folks, right? At this moment in the world, so absolutely, you know that that in many senses is a noble stand, but. Um, you know, we also just want to make sure that it's not overly principled, um, or which we would then define as dogmatic is the word for that, right? Such that you, you miss out on, on opportunities that you should be taking advantage of. So, you know, depending on where that ethical moral concern is coming from, there are different ways to, to overcome this. So for example, you know, if it's, I'm not, I'm not sure like wh- where my data is going, how it's being used or what the training data was, well, there are open source models that that can be used and not just the ones, you know, that are commercialized from the big tech companies that you referenced. Um, we, we could, you know, purpose build a, a, a narrow tool for our own use. So for example, for, you know, one of my courses, we built a, a little narrow use chat bot that just was sort of answering questions in a very narrow set of marketing strategy questions um, and not relying on, you know, sort of big tech for that. So there are different ways to get at it. Um, but I think, you know, the question there is to just sort of say, you know, the famous three whys, like, okay, you say that you are opposed to it for a moral reason. Why is that? And then they'll answer. And then why is that? And why is that? And then we'll get to sort of something that's actually, you know, we can have a discussion on, is it overcomable or not? And if so, how? But the sort of these broad objections are just tough to deal with. Hello, a quick reminder from me that if you're enjoying our podcast series, why not become a member of the DMI so that you can enjoy loads more content from webinars and case studies to toolkits and more real-life insights from the world of digital marketing. Head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com forward slash ahead of the game to sign up for free. Now back to the podcast. It's interesting, you you clearly, you know, you, you're clearly really knowledgeable and you've gone really deep on this subject, but your background, um, from what I can tell, seems to be more in kind of brand, you know, omni-channel marketing, brand strategy, customer data management. How did you get 
to AI? How did you get into AI from that? What was the kind of connection? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a long loop, but I'll make it fast here, right? So, in addition to being a, 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 a fan of marketing, I'm a, I'm a jazz fan, and one of my favorite artists in the world of jazz is the late great Miles Davis. One of the things that I admire about Miles Davis is he was always looking for what's next in jazz, not just you know playing the old standards, uh, you know, redoing what Louis Armstrong had done before him. He was pushing for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And so, you know, I, I, I try to learn from everywhere and everyone that I can in the world and apply that to my marketing and marketing career. And so with that kind of Miles Davis, what's next mindset, Will, you know, that's what led me early, early days into even digital marketing. I mean, I was fortunate to, to, to lead the team that built one of the first five websites for Procter & Gamble ever when a lot of people were like, well, what is digital marketing? What is the World Wide Web? Uh, you know, I was early at Google. A lot of people still weren't familiar with search marketing. And so, um, you know, then on my constant kind of um, hunt, if you will, to figure out like what might be the next big thing, not the next small thing, not the next shiny object, not the next app, but the next big thing. Um, you know, that's what led me to this. And, you know, I've spent uh, the past whole bunch of years trying to really get deep on this topic. And so, you know, I truly believe that this is the, the next big thing. This is not, you know, Sometimes executives ask you and me, well, yeah, I heard this a year and a half ago about the metaverse. Where is that now? Well, I think we're on a different level than that here. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. It's not really what this conversation is about. But do you think some version of that will come around in different clothing at some point in the future? Um, I do. I mean, you know... <laughs> Because we've seen a few bites at that apple, right? I mean, many of us remember Linden Labs here, right? Second Life. I mean, oh, like yeah. there's been kind of applications of this. And, you know, to their credit, I think the folks at Meta are trying to figure out like what's the, the right best use case, you know. PMs call that the product market fit. Is it actually for business people to put an avatar and come together in a virtual meeting when everybody's working remotely? Is it more for gaming? Is it more for social? So people will figure that out. But I, I, I do think that will come back round. Um, but you know, look, I mean, we've all we've all been um, at conferences for how many years where the prediction is we'll be watching the Premier League final with the headset goggles on from our living room, having purchased a ticket at midfield and. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm still not doing that. No, I'm still waiting. Um, yeah, no, I can remember trying those big, heavy VR headsets in the 90s. Right. That almost like crushed your skull when they got clamped onto your head, you know? Remember that? And um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it, it, some version of that clearly just is waiting for the right um, execution. Mm -hmm. Um, but what about AI? Because we know we know about the hype cycle, the um, the you know the hype, and then the trough of dis the trough of disillusionment that follows inevitably. I sometimes wonder if AI is entering a trough of disillusionment because there's a lot of talk about the deterioration deterioration of the quality of responses. There's been a lot of talk about ChatGPT deteriorating, um, and therefore potentially with other um, generative AI tools maybe as well. Do you think that there's a chance that, there's any chance at all, I wouldn't say that this is a fad, but that people will start to kind of get a little bit disillusioned with some the false promises around this tech? Well, I, I think that was the case 
earlier this year. I mean, things move really fast in this space. So after all the initial announcements and the demos and everybody signing up and trying stuff, you know, that was the top of the hype cycle. I'll call that February, March, 2023. But then, you know, the bucket of water in the face, the cold, hard reality of like, wait, how do I actually do this in my company? I got to get it through legal and compliance and IT. And do we have budget for it? And like, you know, the, the, the brass tacks of like, how do I implement or operationalize this? I, th- I think led a lot of people to like, well, I don't want to say quite disillusionment, but maybe frustration or concern or, right? Um, but, you know, to their credit here, but, uh, tech partners, large and small, I think have really stepped up uh, quite a bit through the course of the summer. And I'll point to, again, you know, Will, we're not here to recommend products, but just to illustrate for our listeners, I think, um, you know, there's a product that's a combination of uh, Microsoft and OpenAI called Azure OpenAI that, for example, now, um, you know, lets companies use their internal corporate data in a virtual private cloud instance where the underlying existing large language model actually is the query engine. Now it can read and answer questions based on my corporate data. It doesn't leak and it doesn't get used to train the underlying model potentially for my competitors. And I see a lot of companies now moving in that direction. Um, you know, Walmart very famously announced uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that they are now have a tool up and running for their um, non-store, but the corporate associates that do this. But there are others, you know, companies like Cohere, Watson X, um, even if you're a small business or medium business and use Box as your mm. shared drive, cloud drive, file storage system, Box now has a chatbot that I can open up and query all of those documents with user level permissions, of course. So I think, you know, the speed of, of response to that concern has, um, I think, helped keep us uh, out of that trough of deep disillusionment um, after the initial euphoria. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that, that you, you've mentioned that a couple of times now, this idea of pre-trained language models that are trained on your own corporate data, your own website, your own knowledge bases, and that kind of thing. And that seems to be an obvious layer for any business to want to kind of put on their offering, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, not to be overlooked, there's a lot that can be done with sort of public data, non-confidential queries, existing tools, um, you know, market research being a, a prime aspect for that. But I think to really start to achieve you know, the, the, the promise of what this can do, both on the efficiency and the effectiveness side, it, it needs to know you. It needs to know your business. It needs to know your customers in order to make high quality, usable predictions, um, human plus machine predictions, if you will, that are better than human only or human plus spreadsheet predictions. Well, it moves fast. And, you know, your book, is it two years since the book came out? AR Marketing Canvas. Yeah. What's changed? What are the big changes that have, have occurred since then? Yeah, I mean, we we wrote the book with the idea of it being sort of a durable framework, not knowing exactly how things will develop. And so, you know, those five stages we talked about certainly still apply. But I think, you know, what's changed here is, well, one, um, it's now a conscious topic for almost all, if not all marketers. And it certainly wasn't when we wrote the book. There were you know, some that were interested, some that were curious. Now everyone is. But bigger than that, I think you know, it's, it's the, um, 
sort of the transformer and diffuser models. So those models that predict text and those models that create images, um, you know, with a famous paper that, that Google published that, that has led to things like ChatGPT or stable diffusion, the generative AI tool explosion certainly was not the case. I mean, these things were possible. There was ResNet, ImageNet. There were tools that did these things, but they were much more niche than what, you know, is generally, I don't want to say democratized, but generally much more accessible than they were while we were writing the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was obviously November last year when they put the interface of chat yeah. GPT on GPT was sort of the inflection point, I think, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. And so, and, you know, this is often when, you know, you and I both talk to, to marketers, we have to remind folks that, you know, in the technology space, things move exponentially, right? It go, doesn't go one, two, three, four. It goes one, two, four, eight, 16, 32. So when you look at this and say, you know what, I typed something in the chat GPT and it gave me not a great answer. So chat GPT stinks. I'll never use it again. No, it'll get twice as good tomorrow and four times better the next day. So, you know, stick with it. How do you keep up in such a fast-paced digital environment? Well, look, I mean, I think one of the exciting things about, you know, being a marketer, being in marketing, is that it's, um, you know, you sign up to be a great marketer. You sign up to be a lifelong learner. You know, those of us who've been in this business for a while, like, we didn't know anything about social marketing. We didn't know anything about search marketing. We didn't know anything about database marketing, right? Maybe we came out of the old Mad Men branding school. Um, and you just have to learn those things, right, as the industry and the discipline evolves. And so, um, you know, that's no different here, right? Yes, maybe it's more technical in some aspects than previous things that we had to learn. Uh, but, you know, actually taking time, Lots of good YouTube videos, lots of good podcasts like this one, lots of things to read. I spend, you know, I block an hour a day at least on my own calendar each day to kind of go read, learn, watch, listen, talk to people and try and understand kind of where things are and where things are going. And, um, you know, people say, I don't have time for that, but you know what? It's your career, right? There's not a better investment in yourself than, right, helping yourself learn these things. True. Couldn't agree more. You must get asked, you know, with the sort of way things are changing so constantly, you must get asked about job security, I think. Um, what do you say to people about when, when they say, oh, will I still have a job in 10 years? Well, yes, you will have a job in 10 years because you're actually asking that question, right? So what do they say? Awareness is the first step to change. If you're sensitized enough to what's going on in order to be asking that question, I take that as a good thing. So, you know, now the question is, um, are, are, are you going to sit on the sidelines and let this evolve? Or are you going to dive in with two feet and try to understand it, learn it, try it and apply it? I mean, I often say, you know, how did we all learn social? Well, not by watching a PowerPoint about social, but by putting TikTok on your phone, right? By putting Instagram on your phone and using it and doing it. So that's really my best advice here. And then you start when you have a sense of, you know, what these things are, what they could do, how they operate. Then you start to ask the questions of where and how could I apply these to my own business, to my own brand and start experimenting. And it's the usual cycle, Will, right? It's like test, learn, optimize, scale. Test, learn, optimize, scale. And marketers who have that mindset definitely will have a role. Will it be different? Sure. Will there be some tasks and functions, perhaps even roles that don't exist? Well, sure, right? I mean, you know, 
There were people whose job back in the day was setting type on a Gutenberg press, picking each letter out for the newspaper by hand. Well, that job doesn't exist, right? But there still is a, you know, industry of people in the publishing space and so on, um, using now desktop publishing and InDesign and Adobe and, you know, all those tools. So it will change. Um, but, you know, I think the good thing is now, if all of us have a intern, a personal assistant that can kind of help supercharge or superpower us, um, I think we'll be better marketers for it. And, you know, I use just sort of the simple analogy, Will, of, of the Iron Man suit, right? Dr. Tony Stark was a super smart, is a super smart, super talented, double PhD guy, but him plus, right, the exosuit makes him a superhero. So think about these tools as your own personal Iron Man exosuit. It'll make you a super marketer. I like that. Um, very nice. And so who are you teaching? What kind of students do you have? And what um, what kind of challenges do they typically have? But first of all, don't tell me who exactly you teach on a sort of day-to-day basis. Yeah, so at, at uh, Kellogg School of Management here at Northwestern University uh, outside of Chicago, like most MBA programs, we've got a couple of different programs. We have... Um, you know, an executive MBA program for people who've been working for quite a while, vice presidents, senior directors, um, who, you know, as they move into a general management responsibility, you, you know, need to know more about the other functions of a firm. Uh, I teach a little bit in that program, but mostly I teach in the uh, full-time MBA program. Uh, folks tend to be six, eight, ten years of work experience. Um, and many of them come back because they want to have a sort of a toolkit, a set of frameworks, a deeper understanding of either the function that they've already been in prior to coming for, for that degree. And a number of them want to pivot, right? I was in HR and I want to go into operations or I was in operations and I want to go into marketing. And so need a, a deep understanding of that. So, um, you know, we're, we're really blessed, like, you know, m- many of the excellent MBA programs of having, um, you know, some super talented, super smart students who come with great experience and have high expectations when they come into uh, my classes and, and all their classes. Do a lot of them have some level of imposter syndrome around marketing and business? Yes, and so do I. I have imposter syndrome when I walk into every class every day. I mean, you know, we've faced with 65, you know, super talented students who've, you know, been at Deloitte and Goldman and Google and, you know, come back in. And yeah, that's a that's a, a daunting task to say, what what can I say to, 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 to offer thoughts to these students? And, you know, really, look, the role of uh, modern educators is not, you know, the old sage on the stage where I stand up and give TED Talk after TED Talk and they sit and listen. You know, the role of a modern educator is um, that of a talk show host or a podcast host, right? It's, it's, it's teeing up the conditions for an interesting conversation um, where everybody gets involved and where we have an inclusive education environment, uh, but at the same time being able to share some frameworks, constructs, structures with folks. Uh, and you can see I'm a framework guy. We've already talked about the five steps and the two by two and other things here. So that's what we try to get across. Um, a combination, Will, of durable knowledge that they can use for the rest of their career, but also some temporal, if not perishable knowledge, some things that are happening now that, you know, when they leave us and go start their next role, um, will help them hit the ground running immediately. Yeah, sounds good. I like the sound of that. Um you know, you might remember the way that I found you on LinkedIn was that I was doing some research and came across lots of kind of 
let's just say, um, interestingly designed sort of Canva graphics with this 7-11-4 rule that apparently Google had created all over the internet. And I kept Googling and just I started to think this is an urban myth because I can't actually find the source of this information. Somehow I got wind of the fact that you'd written about that in this um, Zero Moment of Truth ebook when you were at Google, although I couldn't find the actual quote in that. So I was in desperation, got in touch with you. <laughs> and I'm gl- glad you did. I'm glad I did. I, I, I am. And you really cleared up for me. And thanks for that. So just tell me about that, because I wonder if that's an eternal truth or if things have changed a bit since you wrote uh, Zero Moment of Truth over a decade ago. Um, so is the 7 and 11 fall rule still apply, do you think? Yeah, we we wrote the zero moment of truth. Uh, it is a decade ago or so, and you know the idea there was, you know, great marketers are certainly students of customer journey, path to purchase, how are decisions made? Because if you know how decisions are made, then that gives you kind of a window into you know where as a marketer you can assist, aid, influence that that purchase decision. And, uh, you know, lots of marketers uh, to this day continue to, you know, think about moments of truth. And that's actually a, a PNG construct, um, you know, sort of the first moment of truth when, you know, f- f- shoppers are at the shelf. Uh, and in that, those days, it was the physical shelf in a store. Um, you know, do they remember all of the promises and all of the things about your brand that they saw perhaps on, you know, TV commercials? And do they put the product in the cart. And the second moment of truth is when they went home and used it. And um, so, you know, digital was, um, you know, more than in its infancy, but a lot of marketers were, were struggling with what role should it play? Does it replace TV? Does it augment TV? Is it the same customers? Is it different customers? And so, you know, again, back to our conversation about, you know, frameworks, Will, the idea that we had was to say, well, wait a minute, you know, a lot of people in those days were saying, forget everything that you knew, you know, old models are dead. If you're doing that, you're a dinosaur. And by the way, you're hearing a lot of people say that same kind of stuff about AI today or social, right? No, no. Uh, The thing about marketing is it's an additive discipline, right? All of those old rules still apply, right? We could have a whole debate about differentiation and distinction and all of those kinds of, that still matters, even though that we now have AI. And so first moment, second moment still matter. So we said, wait a minute though, before people go to the store, they look stuff up on the internet. They like get ratings and reviews on their phone. So, you know, stuff is happening before the first moment. We called that the first moment minus one or zero moment. And um, we did some research to prove that uh, in different geographies, in different categories at that moment of time. And, um, you know, some of that research then revealed the 7-11-4 that you mentioned, but it was never intended to be a uh, forever in all categories till the end of time among all user groups, right? Uh, You know, uh, uh, chiseled into the granite tablets, right? Um, it was it was a finding from research at that moment in time. But look, we we fast forward all the way up to today, Will, and you know, I mean, we're, we can set aside the seven eleven four literal rule and say, hey, no doubt, no matter what category you're in, B two B, B two C, if you're in Bulgaria or Bolivia or Boston or Birmingham, right? Y- you you better win before people get to the point of sale. Yes, that's a very nice way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, so back to AI. What brands have you noticed that are doing the most 
exciting or interesting things with AI? Yeah, um, I, I think, look, from, from all of our research, lo- lots of brands doing lots of interesting things. Um, I, I would first of all set aside and I would say, you know, just like a, a brand that says, hey, we have a QR code in our ad. We're doing digital. Like, you know, like sort of these tactical, shiny object, one-off things. Um, you know, that's not what we're talking about here as a best practice, right? This says a strategic application. Again, those strategic applications are to drive effectiveness or efficiency either for our team or our customers, right? It's not a sort of shiny object du jour. So who is taking that kind of strategic approach and, and doing really well? Uh, you know, in our research and in all of our conversations, no doubt Starbucks is, uh, you know, way at the advanced end of this. Back to our five stages, they are at the clearly fourth stage on the precipice of stage five. Um, and in fact, if you go look at the user privacy and data policy on Starbucks website, it will in fact say you will get personalized messaging, offers, suggestions based on your past interaction with us as well as interactions that people like you have had with us. So you might get a different offer uh, you know, than your friend, than your spouse, than your partner gets. And so they are doing this very well. It's built on a system that they call Deep Brew, sort of a pun on deep learning combined with you know dark brew coffee um, that's built on the Microsoft on the .NET environment. And um, you know, when you, when you look actually at the data, people think Starbucks is growing either because they're just raising prices or because they're opening more stores or because they're pouring a lot of money into advertising. And the reality is uh, that their store growth has slowed. Um, I set aside their challenge in China for a minute, but like rest of world, their store growth has slowed. Their advertising spend has actually decreased, but yet both on sort of the brand image, brand awareness, but also sales side, they have continued to grow. Why? Well, in earnings calls, they will very clearly attribute it to this sort of machine learning led, again, old way, new way, this new way focus that their marketing team um, has built and is implementing at a world-class level. But isn't that because they've spent years building up the Starbucks card and the loyalty and, you know, the kind of the app and the pre-ordering and the basically very advanced customer data leveraging CRM I mean, surely that foundation is what's made this possible, is it, do you think? A hundred percent, Will. And I love that you use the word foundation because remember that's sort of the the first stage of the five stages of the roadmap, right, is you have to have the foundation. Um, And yes, I mean, Starbucks definitely, you know, has that user data. Some brands, some categories are maybe more fortunate. Um, insurance, like, has all identifiable users. We know your name, your email, your mobile number, right? Maybe your credit score, your, your credit card number. Um, you know, maybe if you're in some fast-moving consumer goods or CPG space, well, maybe not so much. Um, Coca-Cola, right, has had a rewards program that, that kind of helps them get that zero-party, first-party data. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're reinforcing the need to kind of go through those stages. You can't just wake up one day and say, like, we want to be world-class in a week. It is a journey. Well, they're quite ahead of the game there, really, aren't they? Because with the whole zero-party, first-party data, still, you know, only today I was I was running a, a class about that with, with my students and loads of people, loads of people in marketing still haven't done anything about it. You know, they see the Google Chrome third-party cookies thing as being this, this distant 
thing next year. It's all, it's been a next year thing for the last four or five years. Um, do you know, it seems like tomorrow's problem, I think, for a lot of people still. Whereas Starbucks, rather than seeing it as a problem, they're going to have to do some housekeeping around in future. They've just taken CRM seriously for years. Yeah. Uh, well said, Will. I think... Um I, I tr- when I hear I hear that same kind of comment from marketers, and I try to say this is not a technical issue. It's not a cookie issue. It's not a headache. It's an opportunity, right? Like it's not you. You don't need to do the zero party and first data, uh, f- zero party and first party data thing because of something Google might do in the future. You need to do it so you could take advantage of the power, the transformative power of AI now. Yes, because. AI can train on that data and it can help you use that data really smartly. It's not just about building a massive email newsletter list or something, you know, and that's Bingo. only being realized now, I think. That's it. Um, which is very, very interesting. I can see our times coming to a close. I have to say that that was really whizzed by. There's no other way to put it. The, the last big question I want to ask you is top tips. We always like to end on some top tips, very actionable tips. Now, some of it might be recapping things we've talked about, some not, and that's absolutely fine. So imagine a business who's kind of trying to work out how, when, if they need to incorporate AI into their strategy. What top tips would you have for them? All right. So I would first say you need to understand what is it that you're trying to accomplish here, right? Don't let tactics lead strategy. Strategy drives tactics. So don't run around meeting to meeting saying, hey, I hear chatbots are cool and they use AI. Can we use a chatbot here? Where can we use a chatbot, right? Like, you know, the, the, the old hammer and nail, right? Like if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. No, that's not what we want to do here. We want to say, right, like how are you going to create value for your brand, for your firm? Are you going to create value on the top line and or the bottom line, right? Am I going to grow revenue? In other words, become sort of more effective and or am I going to kind of reduce my costs, uh, shrink the bottom line? Well, that's efficiency. So depending on what your priority is, and that's a conversation with your founder, with your board, with your CEO or your CFO, right? Like that should be in your next year's marketing plan. What are those quantified targets on top line and bottom line? And then you say, well, how, how am I going to get there, right? Well, maybe I'm going to get there with category growth if I'm lucky, or maybe I'm going to have headwinds because my category is shrinking or regulation is coming. So then you start to say, okay, well, now given kind of the hurdle that I have to meet, how can machine learning help me on efficiency or effectiveness internally or externally? Then you say, well, wait a minute, who, who's responsible for this? Whose job is it? And you know, the old famous phrase, right? Like if you think it's everybody's responsibility, it's actually no one's. So you need a leader, you need a CMO, a head of marketing who sets the agenda here and says, we are moving in this direction. It's not optional. We're going to figure this out. But then we found the organizations that are really running out ahead and doing this well, Will, are the ones that have named someone. Um, the title varies, but it's like an AI marketing champion. In a few organizations, it's a full-time role, but in many organizations, it's a sort of second hat role, right? In addition to your day job, spend another 20%, 80-20, um, kind of like running the playbook here and saying, okay, do we have training data? If not, why not? Who do we need to partner with here? Are we working with IT? What about regulatory, compliance, legal, et cetera? 
okay, we've got now teams running experiments all around the world. Are we cataloging and sharing back the results of those? Do we have a learning and training agenda? That's just stuff doesn't happen if it's left, you know, to everyone in the organization. We need someone to kind of, you know, be the ringleader. We call that the AI champion. And then the last top tip would be to say, you know, as part of that, though, it is everyone's responsibility to try, to use, to test, to learn about these tools. It's not your agency's job. It's not, you know, IT's job. It's not the data team or data scientist's job. You personally need to lean in and get started. Um, You know, it's been said, you know, the old aphorism, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. You as a marketer, it's your obligation to start taking those single steps now. I mean, it's a very hard question to answer for everyone, but what what is a likely first step, do you think? Well, look, I mean, I think a likely first step is to, maybe it's a better way to say it, get your hands dirty, right, with some of the tools that are out there, whether it's free GPT-3.5. You know, the 4.0 obviously is a paid version, but you can get the equivalent of that, you know, through the uh, Bing chat uh, if you use the creative function there. Bard in most all countries from Google is now freely available. So just, you know, like... Go ask it uh, in Rock Hudson's famous submarine movie, Ice Station Zebra, right? Like, what is it that they were all after? And like, try, right? Like, just kind of start figuring this out. Um, And then you start to say, wow, well, if it can predict those things, I'm in the prediction business. I'm trying to predict the right product to the right person at the right price in the right place at the right time. Marketers are in the prediction business. Machine learning is a prediction technology. Wow, what a perfect intersection. Wow, interesting. I mean, and you talk about getting your hands dirty. I think that one of the core issues for me in digital marketing is as people progress in their careers and they become more senior, they become less hands-on. And so their hands are, let's stick with the analogy, cleaner, uh, and they lose touch with the coal face. I'm introducing just more analogies here. But do you know what I mean? And are you ever, you know, as a CMO, is, is it still on you to go and roll your sleeves up and just get stuck in with this stuff practically? Well, 1,000%. I ran a, a session, a seminar um, with a global 1,000 marketing team sponsored by the CMO a couple of weeks ago, where, by the way, this was not the assistant junior brand managers. This was the chief marketing officer, that person's direct reports, vice presidents, uh, heads of operations, legal, et cetera. And, you know, we sort of went through kind of an understanding baseline, but then we gave them 20 minutes to create a new product in a certain category. Uh, again, I mean, it was not something they were actually going to launch. It was a learning training exercise, but we said using these five AI tools, no company data, nothing confidential, right? Um, so it was a bench study, uh, we want you to come up with ideas for a new product. I want package. I want pricing. I want brand name. I want imagery. imagery I want concept, you know, positioning statement, a concept board. Uh, so talk about hands dirty. This was, you know, lead from the front. The CMO was in the room and stood up when it was that person's turn and said, here's the brand my group of three came up with and really experienced firsthand what this stuff can do. And the feedback from that session was it was a transformative moment. I mean, again, it's one thing to, you know, you should listen to podcasts on this topic and you should watch PowerPoints on it, but you got to do it. You do, you do. And, you know, you say it's, it's lead from the top. I saw the, um, the founder and CEO of DoorDash was on Shark Tank 
and everyone in the company does one day a month delivering food with DoorDash, him included, and everyone. I thought that was great. I know it sounds sounds like something we wish all company executives would do, but it's the same kind of thing. I think once you start losing touch with the uh, the coal face, whatever that is, um, for your business, um, you've got a problem. Yeah, I mean to build that analogy, Will. Right? I mean, I think about the difference between like a uh, a store walk, right? Where, by the way, everyone in the store knows the big brass is coming that day, and the store looks perfect, and it's sort of artificial situation. Versus, yeah, I just you know put the associate's apron on and work in the store, and no one knows who I am, and I sort of really see you know what reality is. That same analogy for how you think about store walks you know, stage store walks versus working a day in the store is the difference here between like going to a conference and watching a presentation about AI and marketing and actually then doing some of these things. Well, Jim, thanks so much. I feel like I've learned a lot and could learn so much more uh, just keeping you on the line for for the rest of the day. But we won't do that because your time is precious. But I do have one last question for you. Where can people find and connect with you online? I'm a big LinkedIn user. So uh, find me on LinkedIn. Send me a, a connection and a, and a hello note. I'd be thrilled and pleased to connect with all of your listeners and you know carry on the conversation over there on LinkedIn. Absolutely. We'll, just, we'll do just that. Thanks so much for your time, Jim. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Will. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about transforming your marketing career through certified online training, head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com. Thanks for listening.